Really nice to be here with everyone. And it's um, always feels like a minor miracle that a group of people are interested to come together in an evening, especially in this strange format of Zoom, and just to be reflecting on Dhamma, the way it is together. And uh, yeah, so I'm always happy to be in this kind of setting and to be recalling the teachings of the Buddha and seeing how they might actually be useful in our lives. And you might have noticed that the title for the talk tonight, How the Path Unfolds, right? And hopefully, you know, our conversation, my sharing and your comments and questions as we go along will make this really useful. That's the point, right? How can we learn? How can we see something we're not seeing clearly enough? And uh, many of you know, I know many of you probably have been practicing for a while that the Buddha's teachings and the path that his teachings point to, they really begin and end with wisdom. So it's really a path of understanding. And the way the Buddha analyzed his own predicament, his own existential predicament, was that the problem with life isn't knee pain or even aging and death. The problem was wrong understanding or misperceiving. And in Buddhism, in early Buddhism, we talk about this as seeing permanence where things are actually impermanent, seeing satisfaction when things are actually not satisfying. Now, remember, not satisfying doesn't mean that things are unpleasant. It just means that any experience, pleasant or unpleasant, isn't fundamentally satisfying in a lasting way. We've probably, if we're lucky enough, have had a lot of nice experiences in life, maybe even some very sublime experiences in life. And is anybody completely sated, (laughs) completely content and at ease? No. So the the habits of misperceiving, seeing permanence when things are actually changing in motion, seeing satisfaction when that actually isn't true, that things are fundamentally unsatisfying, seeing self when things are actually nature, a natural process, experience doesn't refer back to a permanent me or you. And the last is seeing beauty when things are neither beautiful nor ugly. They're just nature the way it is. Not this duality of beautiful and ugly. So this is the, you know, from the start, the Buddha, and we get these pointing out instructions. So in terms of us walking our path in life, we have this important instruction from the Buddha, but it, it arrives for us just as information. So it's of limited use, but it's a start to have some information. Oh, All of suffering, all of our mental suffering as a human being, all of the existential angst, anxiety, uneasiness of heart can be traced to the thing that's missing is understanding in my heart, in my own mind, not in the world even, but just within my own mind. So that's something we can then reflect on, contemplate, See if it illuminates, helps us understand our life. Like, oh, let me 
really start to track how my mind is understanding, how my mind is relating. And then that leads to insight. There's a, I find a very confidence-inspiring, faith-inspiring passage from the Buddhist teachings. Some of you maybe have heard this. Kappa's question. This is in the Sutta Nipata number 10. Someone's talking to the Buddha, asking the Buddha a question. Sir, he said, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being and death and decay. Overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where to find solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. So that's, that's a very poignant lament to the Buddha. I hope if I ever run into a Buddha that I have the wherewithal to ask such a relevant question. You know, my heart's churning. A lot of the people, maybe all the people around me, their hearts are churning. Where do we find relief? How do we find relief? So here's what the Buddha said. Kappa, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. Now he's got my attention at this point. (laughs) Okay, tell me, where do we find solid ground? And the Buddha continues, there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness or maybe no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay And this is why I call it Nibbana. And you know, the word Nibbana is actually, evidently, the scholars think it was a pretty common word at the time of the Buddha that the Buddha then used, you know, as an essential word in his teaching. But it just had to do with a fire going out, the cooling of a fire, the extinguishing of of a fire. This is why why I call it the cool or... Ajahn Tanisaro, a Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition, sometimes will translate Nibbana as the unbinding, which is similar to the cooling, the unbinding. And then the last sentence here in this passage, or last two sentences, the Buddha says to Kappa, there are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. Mara is sort of the personification of human ignorance. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. So this is meant, you know, both to inspire and to give us some clues about how to practice. There is an island we cannot go beyond. It's a place of no thingness. So the mind isn't getting stuck in things or nouns, you know. And for us, you know, the term in Buddhism, nama, nama rupa, this is the activity of name and form. And this is what consciousness is always obsessively knowing. Experiences of nama and rupa, name and form. 
And we're endlessly, the mind is endlessly captivated by the dance of name and form. And so he, the Buddha is opposing that with this island. It's interesting that simile of an island because, you know, we want to think of it as being somewhere else, you know, a remote island in the South Pacific with beautiful coconut trees and perfect beaches and no mosquitoes and a nice tropical hut, you know, with cool tropical breezes and fresh fruit, mangoes and papayas and Sounds nice, huh? Especially in Minnesota, we're having a lot of heat and humidity. That sounds really nice. But the island is here and now, right? It's always available here and now because it is defined, this island is defined by the mind not being stuck in thingness, not being stuck with possessions, the ideas of possessions or attachment. This is the total end of death and decay. This is why I call it Nirvana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves to these ancient tendencies in our mind, right? Mara, ancient tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion, self-centeredness. They cannot fall into these, this power of, of delusion, of greed, hatred, and delusion of self-centeredness. So now we have some information and we can contemplate it together tonight and we can see where it leads, how it impacts the heart, changes the heart, transforms the heart. And so I'm going to share tonight some of the teaching stories from the Buddha that just help us understand our path. And Don't think of them exactly as a linear progression, although in some ways they may line up to your own path. And, you know, uh, the way the Buddha shared his path with others, he talked about the four heavenly messengers. Many of you have heard these stories where the the Buddha was relating later after his own awakening to his students about that time as a young man sort of the ideal privileged life he had as a sort of a prince or a kind of the son of the chief family in this fiefdom in Northern India with a nice place to live and a wonderful partner and a newborn child and all the things, you know, all the things that somebody in that time and place would aspire to, he had in a way at least mythologically, we want to sort of understand, but being a reflective sort of person, this this young man realized that everything I have, everything I rely on for happiness can change. And that insight came from just paying attention. And it's described in this sort of metaphorical way of riding in the chariot, having lived a very secluded life in the palace or in the comforts of his nice residence, you know, his father keeping him from the unpleasant truths of the world, he decided to check it out. So he asked his charioteer to drive him around. And he, in the course of a few days, saw a really elderly person. And he was shocked. Oh, my God. Of course, this is going to happen to all of us. This body, too. Me, too. This body's going to fall apart. 
And the next day, as the story goes, you know, he sees a sick person, a deathly sick person. And the third day, a dead person. And then the fourth day, a renunciate, somebody who saw the limitations of pursuing things that don't last as a cause for our happiness, like strength and health, right? They don't last or wealth, can't keep it. It all goes away. Some of you know the five remembrance that some of us chant. This is a good thing to, even every day, because it doesn't take that much time just to make it a little ritual, just 60 seconds, maybe two minutes. When you wake up, when you go to bed, I am of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not yet gone beyond sickness. Anybody gone beyond sickness? I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is mine, all my possessions, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I don't get to take anything with me. And then the last is this one about karma. I am the owner of my karma, my actions, my intentional actions, heir to my actions. Actions are the womb from which I have sprung. Actions are my relation, my relations. Actions are my protection. Whatever actions for good or for bad of these, I shall become the heir. So these are the five remembrances, aging, sickness, death, all my possessions, especially the beloved ones will become otherwise. We become separated from me. And the only thing I really have is however I act by thought, word, and deed, you know, when I do anything with intention, it leaves an impression on my heart. It doesn't matter if no one else saw me do it or think it or say it. My own sensitive heart is going to be impacted by what I think and say and do. So that's who I become. Like, this is a me, you, we're natural processes. And as a sensitive natural process, who we are, this unfolding mind, unfolding heart, is this cumulative, these cumulative impressions that have been laid down through intentional actions of thought, word, and deed. In a way, in a Buddhist sense, that's what a human being is. The cumulative impressions, causes and conditions, these internal causes and conditions that have been laid down because isn't it true? Like if I do something really skillful, I restrain myself from being, for being snarky with my partner. And I instead, you know, am a kind, momentarily kind and generous with my partner. That leaves an impression in my mind stream, in my heart. So then in the next moment, I'm the person who has that impression in my heart. Like, I'm slightly differently, uh, slightly different after that impression being laid down. If instead I were snarky and inappropriate and unwise in a moment, well, that leaves an impression in the mind stream, in the heart. And so in the next moments, who I am, what I am, how I respond will be coming out of those cumulative impressions that have been laid down.
So this is what, in a sense, you know, uh, stirred this spiritual urgency in the bodhisattva. This is the, that word. It, in later Buddhist traditions, bodhisattva becomes sort of a very important theme, living, practicing for the benefit of all beings. But the word was originally used, somebody on their way to awakening. That's what it means. Um, and so we refer to the Buddha, not as the Buddha at this point, because he hasn't had his deep insight. He's a bodhisattva, someone on their way to awakening. And uh, he saw, like, from a place of humility, like, why would I pursue things that won't really take care of me in life? Maybe it would be better to leave them behind and search for a refuge that's a worthy refuge. And this is this should sound familiar because I'm guessing this is where we're at, right? We're not spending all of our time thinking about what new kitchen gadgets would make my life easier or you know whatever it might whatever rings your bell these days, you know, new electronic devices, reading another article in the news or Instead, you're showing up to a talk from the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And this is sort of the same turning like, oh, there's got to be a refuge that's a worthy refuge, an island that we can't go beyond, that really resolves this heart's uneasiness. And so, you know, one of the things that have always uh, just been a cause for a lot of um, just trust in the Buddhist teachings is this emphasis on dukkha. I know not everybody likes that. Dukkha means, I mean, it gets badly translated as suffering, but because it, it's much more nuanced than just the word suffering. It's both the ordinary physical and mental pain, that's part of dukkha. And it's also the unpleasantness when we realize on a nice vacation that it's gonna end. So even that knowing that the vacation's only nine days, in a way, spoils it, right? Or whatever it is that we're enjoying. So even when the conditions are quite nice, knowing that we can't always have them exactly the way we want them, makes them unsatisfactory in a funny way, even when it's really good. And then the most subtle aspects of dukkha, the sankara dukkha, um, is something even more, a more refined truth of sense existence, this human existence. In uh, evidently the root of the word dukkha yeah, and or at least how it was used as a wheel that's out of true, doesn't quite work. So there's something just in sense existence that doesn't quite work. Because here we are a person imagining that we're somehow apart, solid, permanent, trying to get safety and solid ground in a world that can't provide that because the, the premise itself is off, 
is diluted, isn't really in alignment. We're trying to solve a problem that isn't there, which means it's eternally frustrating. Or as one Dharma teacher said, uh, Joseph Goldstein used to quote this person, barking up a, a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. Right? It's just sort of, this is our existential position. And this is sort of the more subtle aspect. Being a self trying to find safety is a setup. And this is the Sankara Dukkha. Because the, there's a lack of clarity about how it is, the way it is. And so from the ignorant point of view, we're trying to resolve the uneasiness, but we've made a lot of presumptions like that there's a me in the way I imagine there's a me. And so I'm trying to resolve anxiety with this presumption that this me is what I imagine it is. And I never go and do that more fundamental research. What is this life, this human life? What is this experience of the mind? And so the, the initial um, you know, movement that we all explore and the Buddhist teachings, you know, his own description of his own path really illuminate for us is this turning. And probably we're all in the middle of still of this turning where we're not 100% oriented toward um, kitchen gadgets and <laughs> this and that. And we're putting more and more hopefully of our energy into this humble investigation of the nature of the heart, the nature of the moment, something that's here and now. You know, one of the really beautiful expressions of this and a lot, you know, in a lot of the early Buddhist traditions, the nuns and monks will chant this every day or some version of this quite often. Let's see if I can find it here. I thought I made a copy of it. Hmm, but uh, it, it's just this chant about Dhamma, which is timeless, which is here and now, which is onward leading. So this is the way that in early Buddhism, we understand like opening to the present moment is timeless, is onward leading, is really um, no one else can do this for us. There are all these different aspects of Dhamma or Dharma. And in a way, in a funny way, this in early Buddhism is our devotional object. I mean, we have statues of the Buddha and, and other, there's the eight spoked wheel that stands for the eightfold path. And we have other images that you see in, in the temples and uh, stupas in early Buddhist countries, Theravada countries like Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka. But really Dhamma or Dharma is our devotional object, but it's not, it's not easily captured in an image, right? But it's here and now. It's always here and now. And that's really important, you know, as we 
imagine this turning from what we call a worldly life to us, let's say a spiritual life. It's really that different orientation from like, even during this last sit for those who joined in, you know, I noticed several times my mind, there's some property near common grounds, uh, retreat property. We have a four to six acres in Western Wisconsin. So about 83 miles from Minneapolis and St. Paul where the center is. And we've been developing it. We've, we've got a really nice building now that we've developed. And now there's some property next door, beautiful property next door that's for sale. And I noticed it come up in my mind several times during the set, you know, oh, cabin, I'm getting older, having my own cabin on that land, nobody to bother me, <laughs> far enough away from the retreat property that people don't see it, but close enough that I can walk down and go sit with a with the community and take care of my business there and teach, <laughs> you know, and it's like a carrot that we dangle in front of the mind. And, and, you know, we don't see this always, but if we're honest, we'll, and deconstruct it, we'll see, oh yeah, there's that promise. Oh yeah. If only then, then I'll be happy. I'll be content. Then I'll be safe. Then I'll be on solid ground. Right? That's the lie. So that's called worldly life. Even if we're thinking about a, a meditation cabin uh, as part of a retreat property, even that is delusion. The delusion isn't, it isn't that it's bad to have a nice teacher cabin uh, near a retreat property, a Buddhist retreat property. The problem, the, the delusion is thinking that there's somebody who's going to be satisfied that there's a somebody who's going to have solid ground that will make craving go away because you got what you wanted. We've gotten what we've wanted a lot. Has craving gone away for any of you? Raise your hand. <laughs> it hasn't gone away because there's something off in how we're understanding, right? So there's this very important shift or change in allegiance that happens, this turning. And it's really useful for us to know this in our own life and to actually talk about this with our Dharma friends. And like I said, we're probably all in the middle of it to some degree where we're still, it, those uh, worldly pursuits still seem pretty good. You know, the perfect cabin, the perfect haircut, whatever it might be, however mundane or however special it might be, even going on a long retreat can be some version of a worldly pursuit. If we understand it in terms of the, if only then, if only I could do a long retreat, then I'd be done. Then I'd be safe. Then I'd be on solid ground. So we turn even our Dharma practice into this, sort of worldly pursuit. And then we, in our Dharma circles, we compare, I've done this many retreats, you know, and somebody else has something. And, you know, it's kind of a, whose God is bigger type thing. This comparing mind. This is a little passage from the Buddha. Seeking satisfaction in the world, practitioners, I pursued my way. That satisfaction in the world I found. 
Insofar as satisfaction existed in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. Right? Seeking satisfaction, or you could say gratification. Like, I know, because gratification, getting what we want, that's what he's talking about here. Getting what we want is something. It's not nothing. When If I were to get that cabin in the perfect place, and somehow I had the money for it, and it was just right, and I got a lot of sun in the wintertime and no sun in the summertime, you know, all those sort of perfect things and had no carbon footprint and didn't, didn't disrupt or disturb, you know, the plants and animals building it, no harm done, you know, all of these things that can happen, right? Man. So it would be something though, like if it actually happened, that experience of gratification is something. And so the Buddha is saying here, he's not saying avoid pleasant experience. He's saying, learn from it. When you're able to have pleasant experience come your way and it's not causing harm, then let it come your way and really see clearly what pleasant experience delivers. Pleasant experience, surprisingly, not surprisingly, it's pleasant, right? It feels good. We don't need to be afraid of pleasant experience or ordinary worldly pleasant experience. I had an ice cream bar this afternoon. It was nice. And it didn't last very long, right? It was there. It was a pretty small one. <laughs> and then it was gone. And, uh, but it was still nice. I think I'm going to do it again. Maybe even this evening, who knows? So, but, but the idea is to, to really study what those moments of pleasantness are. And then the Buddha goes on, seeking for misery in the world, for dukkha, for suffering. I, I had pursued my way. The misery in the world I found, insofar as misery exists in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom, Right? So pain, all, all levels of pain, ordinary physical pain, ordinary mental pain, emotional pain, as well as the pain of uh, nice experience, not being, not being able to count on it because we know it's going to leave. And even the most subtle uneasiness of the heart, we want to study it. It's a teacher, just like pleasantness is a teacher, unpleasantness is a teacher. And in a way... There's no going beyond without really getting what gratification is and what uh, the drawbacks are to sense existence. And then there's one more place the Buddha studied. He studied gratification. He studied the drawbacks of sense experience. And then he studies the, what he here is translated as the escape. And it goes... This way, seeking for the escape from the world, practitioners, I pursued my way. That escape from the world I found. This is Nibbana. Insofar as an escape from the world existed, I have well perceived it by wisdom. If there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, beings would not be attached to the world. If there were no misery to be found in the world, beings would not be repelled by the world. And if there were no escape from the world, 
beings could not escape from the world. There wouldn't be awakened ones, wise ones, if there was no escape. Now we think of escape, just like I mentioned in terms of the island, as like, get me the heck out of here. And there's a lot of that in spiritual teachings of transcendence. And we, I think, wrongly understand that as like somehow going someplace really nice, like heaven, where we're not in the messiness of having a body that's aging or having to navigate power relationships at work or in society or any of the other many, many other messy, difficult, you know, like how trauma lives, gets passed along, all the terrible, oppressive, destructive, mean-spirited things that have happened. And then that pain, just because it's unresolved, it's unacknowledged, it's unaddressed, it just repeats itself, whether it's around racism or sexism or any of the other, uh, many other ways that we take advantage of our planet and of each other. And it just cycles upon cycles of suffering. So the escape isn't to somehow get the heck out of there because that's called fear or greed, right? That's just more of the same in a way. If the problem is misunderstanding, the resolution is clarity, seeing things as they are. So this is what we'll have to come to. You know, once we get a sense, this turning that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that there's a limitation to sense experience. Doesn't mean I give up on sense experience. Doesn't mean I don't put a sweater on when I'm cold or feed my body when it's hungry or even enjoy a good laugh, a good movie with friends as a way to balance the mind and, and you know uplift the heart when it needs that kind of medicine. It just means I'm not expecting it to fix, to resolve the existential uneasiness in my heart. And we really uh, resolve not to forget that there's something that's asking for resolution. And <clears throat> there's sort of two primary tools then that the Buddha lays out. And you've heard this many times, I'm sure, Tranquility and insight is sort of the simple description of these two, two tools. And they're really meant to work together. Now, sometimes people really put a lot of energy into tranquility practice and developing concentration. Other people, boo-hoo, concentration practice because they don't think they're good at it and just want to do vipassana or insight meditation, wisdom style practice. But the way the Buddha taught in early Buddhist, you know, in the early teachings is, is really understanding the, how they work together. And this is true, not just in terms of your formal meditation time, but all day long. How can I uh, ground and rely on the power of tranquility and the power of insight, of wisdom? How can these forces be active, these qualities be active in my heart and mind all day long? And when we're sitting in meditation, 
then we're just taking advantage of the simple environment and the seclusion from duties and responsibilities for that hour or 30 minutes or whatever you have to sit, hopefully most days. We're just taking advantage of that to really get better in a way of cultivating tranquility and wisdom as a, as a force that has some momentum in our mind stream, like just mental qualities that support tranquility, mental qualities that support seeing clearly. That's what wisdom is, seeing things as they are. So I wanna talk a little bit about both of those. You know, the, the tranquility piece is really just, um, I think somewhere in the suttas, the Buddha says, you know, a wise person is happy to forego a limited ease for a more refined ease, a more a deeper ease. And in terms of learning how to cultivate the quality of tranquility and calm and settledness and unification of the mind and the heart, the stability, non-fragmentation of the heart and mind is by following a thread of pleasure. It feels good, but it, you know, even though it's a very resonant and relatively satisfying pleasure, initially it's not as loud as some of the other pleasures like an ice cream sandwich or exciting music or whatever your cup of tea is in terms of pleasures, worldly pleasures. So initially we have to, we hear this like, somebody telling us, a teacher telling us, you know, making an appropriate effort, a wise effort to touch in to the very real healing pleasure of samadhi, of that inner unification, really worth it. You know, so we hear that a lot, especially in Buddhist circles, you know, oh, you should sit every day. Oh, you know, use your breath, use awareness of the body, keep coming back to the present moment, persist, and good things will happen, right? Haven't we been given that message over and over again? And to some degree, we've, you know, we start with borrowed faith, like, well, maybe they're, maybe they're talking about something that I don't know, let me check it out. I remember the first time, you know, first year of my practice, it probably was 1983. And, uh, <clears throat> My, my best friend from college, um, we sort of spent a year apart and then we both ended up in Berkeley, California about a year after graduation. And uh, we were both grad students there in Berkeley. And, uh, and we both had started meditating independently. And then we came back, realized we were gonna be in the same town, we lived together and we were both on fire with meditation. And so we had someone to sit with, at least twice a day we sat. Uh, for a number, number of years when we were living together. And it was really an ideal situation. And I remember one evening we were sitting before we were going to eat dinner. And uh, I just, uh, my mind settled, you know, I just continuity of present moment awareness. And I felt some samadhi. It felt so nice. And I was like, even though I had done a lot of reading at that point, and uh, of course read about sort of the mind settling and what that like, it was so moving to see that was actually true, 
know, that when the mind settles down and there's enough continuity of present moment awareness and the, the mind doesn't feed the hindrances of wanting and not wanting and is balanced in energy, not too sleepy, not too restless, and there's no doubt. And just to notice this capacity of all of our hearts and minds to be profoundly settled. I mean, not profoundly in the sense of jhana or sort of deep absorption, but just ordinarily settled, which is profound because culturally we're not settled. You know, we're, we're restless. You know, animals generally are restless because we're worried about predators and we're worried about social animals like humans. We're worried about whether we're fitting in or not and any number of other concerns. I think Ajahnamaro once said something like, you know, we're obsessed with, can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Will it eat me? <laughs> and that's restless. So when the mind, the heart, the body settles down and we touch into tranquility, oh, it just feels so good. It's a, it's a real healing of the mind, the heart and body. In a funny way, we feel like we belong in this life. It's a little, that taste of equanimity that we get even with some basic calm. It's a, it's a little taste of Nibbana, of the flavor of the path. A taste that, taste of contentment. Now the contentment with, uh, with tranquility is um, we're content because it feels good. There's a more profound contentment that arises from understanding, equanimity and contentment that arises from understanding or wisdom. But it has the same flavor of the equanimity, the balance and the contentment that arises from tranquility. Because the heart is momentarily or for a time undisturbed by what's coming and going because what's coming and going is not disturbing. It's in a peaceful place, wholesome states of mind. Nothing is really rocking the boat. Just like a nice loving kindness meditation and the heart is abiding with that generosity of goodness, benevolence, wishing well, whether it's more of a compassionate vibe or a, of a friendly vibe. And we can, again, we taste that tranquility. Now, the great thing about tranquility isn't just how pleasant it is, but that it really sensitizes the mind and heart. That's really its purpose in the awakening. It's sort of, you know, it's, I often say to people in the introduction to mindfulness class here at Calm Ground Meditation Center that um, we should have a warning. Maybe you should have one at Cambridge Insight center as well. We should have a warning on the front door. Beware those who enter. You know, if you do your practice well, you will get really sensitive. And it isn't easy being a sensitive human being, which is why there's so much alcohol and entertainments and other things to keep us absorbed and distracted and kind of tranquilized, not in a good sense, right? Because when we're sensitive, we feel and see everything 
more and more. Like we see and feel injustice. We see and feel how we're complicit in so much suffering, our own and others. We feel impacted every time we use a plastic bag, knowing we shouldn't be using plastic bags, even something that small. You know, we, like in my case, like I notice my maleness. I can't help it now. I don't, I'm not saying I see it all, but I see more and more of it as the years go by. How I'm programmed, you know, as a male, as a straight male, as a white straight male, as an older, well-educated white straight male. I'm not saying it's all bad, but there's some problems with that cultural conditioning. It's not personal but I'm very much, I need to be responsible for it because I don't want to cause myself or anybody harm because of this conditioning. So this brings us into the realm of insight practice and how insight really depends on tranquility because the tranquility practices really sensitize the heart. We have a nice calm meditation and then we get up and we feel good, but then we realize Oh my God, I am so sensitive. Even the red stoplights look so red. (laughs) Everybody's like rushing, even though they're just walking at a normal pace. And the only thing that eases the intensity of being really sensitive, the only thing that helps is wisdom. So you see how we kind of, like the Buddha says, The pleasure of tranquility is a trustworthy pleasure. But there's a cost. You will become very sensitive. And the only way you're going to be able to handle your sensitivity is to develop wisdom. And of course, the wiser we become, part of that wisdom will be how to drop everything, how to drop our duties and responsibilities and open to tranquility more easily, right? But then we'll get more sensitive. We'll feel and sense more. We'll never be away. Like, you know, now we get tranquility because we go on vacation, that tropical hut I was describing earlier, right? Some, something like that. Maybe some of you on the East Coast, it's a cabin in New Hampshire or something like that, or on the, on the Cape or something that people do out in your neck of the woods. But but uh, the, um, you know, that kind of tranquility is, uh, it's stressful to sort of need something. But we take advantage of it, you know, any way we can get it. And we get more sensitive and we realize that I need wisdom, the wisdom of non-attachment, the wisdom of non-grasping. I really like this. This is Ajahn Chah. You know, when he was describing Nibbana and awakening, he describes it as the wisdom or the experience of non-grasping, the heart free from grasping. I really like that um, definition because we definitely know the heart that is grasping. So it, it actually helps us understand, like get curious even, well, what's the heart free from grasping? So we develop tranquility generally in practice, you know, the first years, 
the, the general tone of our sitting and our daily life practice is to settle down. And even, you know, working with some of the moreover strengths, undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings, undertaking the training not to take things that haven't been given to us, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm through our sexual activities, undertaking the training to refrain from using speech in ways that cause suffering by lying or gossiping or, you know, slandering somebody, using words as a weapon to harm somebody. And then the fifth precept, the fifth moral training is undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that make us careless. It's not that drinking or drugs are inherently unskillful, but if they lead to us being more careless, then it's a problem because part of this moral sensitivity is like, as we get more sensitive, we naturally become a more beautiful moral being. We have more and more integrity around non-harming because we know it matters. How do we know it matters? Because my heart is this raw, sensitive thing. It feels and senses everything. I can't tell you like, I mean, it's less and less as the years go by, but in, when you give a Dharma talk, which, you know, for me, it's something I really care about. And it's, you know, I try not to be so controlled, which means that I can say things or even a kind of emphasis I might have when I'm saying something that's just a little or sometimes not just a little, a lot off. And then after the talk, the moral sensitivity with, oh, I said that? I said it in that way? And there's a very real unpleasant feeling like, oh, honey, be more careful. Not in a judgmental way, but in a really useful way. We don't talk about that as much as we should, this, the, this moral sensitivity. It's hiri otapa for those who like the Pali, wholesome regret and wholesome concern. It's really like when we're distilling all of our past experiences in a really useful way, the result is we have this very profound moral sensitivity. Like we really don't want to set emotion more suffering. There's too much already for ourselves or for anybody. And when we do, it reverberates. But that's exactly what it should do. And the reverberation is a very loving reverberation. Honey, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do it like that. That isn't helpful for you or for anybody. Please be full of care because you care, right? So that moral sensitivity, wholesome regret, wholesome concern is a real, the Buddha calls it the guardian of the world, the guardians of the world, this sensitivity. And this is really the, be the beginning of Vipassana. Because Vipassana, insight practice, we're using not just the depth of, of uh, um, samadhi, you know, the sort of holding the present moment in mind in a way that causes the mind to drop everything else. And we get some of that calm and tranquility. But with Vipassana, with wisdom practice, we're also really cultivating the breadth of present moment awareness so that we can in a way track and connect the dots 
we're really seeing the unfolding, how things arise and how they cease, how states of stress arise, how states of stress, how entanglements unwind and cease. Right? And we want to track that because we want to understand how it works. Suffering and the end of suffering. This is what the heart is actually really interested in. Suffering and the end of suffering. But it's uh, the suffering and the end of suffering is really about how wrong understanding, misperceiving, seeing permanence when there's impermanence, seeing self when there's not self, it's just nature, imagining there's satisfaction when there really isn't any kind of permanent satisfaction, right? And seeing how when we misperceive, the heart gets tight, gets bound up, gets entangled. And when there's more clarity, the heart doesn't get entangled. And any entanglements there are, unwind and cease. So that's what, that's what Vipassana, that's what wisdom practice is doing. It's, it's a much more inclusive kind of present moment awareness, open awareness. You know, it's not quite right to say choiceless awareness, but there's some value in that word, choiceless, because it's inclusive and because wisdom needs to leave things alone so the nature of the present moment can reveal itself for what it is. It's nature. It's not permanent. It's not self. It's not satisfying. So the tendency to grasp is worn out precisely because the mind is seeing things as they are. And this is the last point I want to make before opening it up for discussion. I really like this, you know, and I, I really connect this with taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which some of you know is a real common thing in early Buddhism in all schools and all uh, traditions, you know, that didn't really change. Same with the precepts that I went through just a few minutes ago. Buddha is being open and awake. Dhamma is the way that it is. Sangha is that appropriate response that arises when the heart is intimate, when it, the heart is Buddha knowing Dhamma, being awake to the way that it is, then it's actually possible because the response, what we think, what we say, what we do, what we don't think, what we don't say, what we don't do, it's going to arise out of Buddha knowing Dhamma, the heart being open, clear with the way it is. And the thing I, I really love about the Buddhist teachings is how the awakening process really needs the world as it is. Or let's say, maybe better, Buddha needs Dhamma. The Buddha needs our life, the messiness of our personality, the messiness of us having our body as it is today in this moment, our relationships as they are, or don't exist, you know, whatever the predicament, because it's so profoundly easy for us to imagine we need a different life, a different personality, a different situation to do the practice. I remember Joseph Goldstein saying to me at some longer retreats, you know, you know, he was saying this, I think, in terms of the hindrances, don't believe the thought, 
that I need a different moment, a different situation in order to practice. Don't believe that thought. Like, oh yeah, when it's not this moment, then I'll get back to my practice. But I can't practice with this moment because it's like this. Don't believe that thought. That somehow we want to reimagine the awakening process actually needing the mess of our life as it is. Or maybe your life isn't a mess. So the beauty of your life as it is, right? And if it is beautiful for you, then you just remember that the beauty and goodness in your life is not dependable, that it will go away, right? And then you need that in order to awaken. And I'm not saying it's like metaphysically true. I'm saying it's pragmatically useful to think that way that the life we have, the body we have, the personality we have, the world we live in now together is just the ticket, right? It's, it's like perfectly ready for us to bring Buddha, this open-hearted, loving-hearted, curious, sensitive presence and learn how to meet, learn how to be inclusive and intimate And notice how functional that Buddha knowing Dhamma is by observing Sangha. How what we say is just so much more nimble and appropriate for the given moment. Instead of tripping over myself, I just seem to handle moments with more grace and nimbleness and ease. Not because I'm trying to be perfect, but because I'm emphasizing feeling what I'm feeling, seeing what I'm seeing. And remember this Buddha knowing Dhamma, the Buddha is not trying to figure out Dhamma. Like what is this Dhamma thing, right? Because that's not Buddha. It's really more like, I like using that word exposed. Buddha, brave Buddha is willing to be exposed, willing to be vulnerable, willing to be humbled by the reality of the moment, whether it's a boring moment or an intense moment or beautiful moment, or whatever moment it might be. And I see we've run out of time and it's just been great being with you all. And I wish you well in your practice and hope to run into you down the world, down the road, whether we're practicing together or you're coming to some of the retreats that I might be leading, but just really great to be here tonight. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.